We continue today in our study in the book of Matthew. We started September 10th, perhaps, somewhere around there, second Sunday, I believe. And as we have gone through Matthew's gospel here in these first few chapters, we have seen the coming of Jesus compared to several other things in redemptive history. And we drew attention to this as we've gone through. First, we saw the coming compared to the creation, where we see the Spirit of God active in the coming of the new world and the new creation in Genesis 1. And also, when Jesus comes inaugurating the new creation, the new people of God, the Spirit is there. He is conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit. Matthew also draws our attention to the fact that there is much similarity between Moses and Jesus in the way that Moses and provide deliverance and the way he had to flee and then come back when it was safe. All these parallels we saw as Matthew is trying to draw the reader's attention to the fact that this is not the first time we've seen something like this in redemptive history. There have been people and situations in the past that should seem somewhat familiar as we come to the opening chapters of Matthew's gospel. Now seeing these kinds of similarities, these kinds of connections in the Bible is called typology. So maybe you've been reading in the New Testament and you see Paul say something like, and Adam who was a type of him who was to come. Remember that from Romans? So typology is the study of seeing how different figures or people foreshadow or point to someone who's going to come later. Okay, So that's when I say typology or typological. That means that we are seeing a comparison. And it's a really helpful tool that can help us to understand the significance of a certain person or event in redemptive history. It also, I think, helps us in seeing that all of the things in the Old Testament are not the main point. And this is why I say, and I want to keep encouraging us as a church, to read the Bible canonically. In light, read the Bible in light of the Bible. That's a really simple way to say it. So in other words, if we were to read, uh, let's say, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. If we read those books without the context of the rest of the Bible and we just focus in on that, could we be helped and encouraged? Yes, of course. It's God's self-declaration. It's his law. It's what he expects of his people. But if that's all we had and we ignore the rest of the Bible without making some connections, we're going to miss out on what the main point was. Moses was never meant to be the main point. He was a great leader. He did some wonderful things in the service of God, but he is not the main point. David was a great king. He loved God. He recorded hundreds of poems and songs and psalms that we still have in the Bible today. He was not the point. These men are pointing forward to someone who is coming after, and the study of typology helps us see how they point, and it helps us to understand more the significance when Jesus does come on the scene. But typology not only applies to individuals, it also applies to people groups or situations. So think of the Exodus, for example. What happens in the Exodus? God's people are in slavery, and they need someone to come and deliver them from slavery, and this happens by God punishing the sins of someone else, Pharaoh. 
He punishes Pharaoh for his sin and his hardness of heart. And in the process, God's people are led to freedom. Doesn't that sound familiar? What do we see as we keep reading in the scriptures? God's people are under slavery to sin. And we need a deliverer to come and break the bondage of sin. We need that sin to be paid for by someone else, namely Christ on the cross, as he leads his people to delivery and freedom from sin. So Jesus is a greater exodus. You tracking with me so far? So this is not just person to person, but we can use typology to see situation to situation or people to person or it goes both ways here. And I bring this up because in our text today, so we're in Matthew 4, you can start turning there if you want to, we are going to see typology in action, only it is not individual to individual, as maybe we've seen with Moses or Adam or David in the past, rather it is nation to individual, as we see these unavoidable parallels between Israel's failure to obey God in the wilderness and Jesus' ability to obey God as his true son. So this section of Matthew, Matthew 4, verses 1 to 11, is doing what all the other sections have done by showing us a typological example. Remember what that means? A type. It's, Matthew is showing us how what happened in the past helps us understand what's happening now, only the fulfillment is so much greater. It's so much greater. So that's my whole point this morning. I want to highlight and demonstrate and show you the obedience of Jesus where the people of God had failed in the past. So open your Bibles, Matthew chapter 4. Follow along as I read the first 11 verses. Matthew chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him upon the pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands he will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, again it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan. For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Let's pray. Father, as our hearts have been prepared through hearing your word, hearing the importance of scripture alone as our authority, through singing praises to you, Lord, now, Take all of this preparation that we have undergone and make it practical. We ask, Lord, that our hearts would be opened and warmed to your word. There's a reason that we don't just 
come in the door and, and crack the Bible and start studying right away. We need oftentimes our hearts to be in tune with you. We need to be brought into a place where we can hear and understand. So God, I pray that this morning your spirit would be here as we open your word, that we would understand what you want us to understand, that we would see what you want us to see, and that, Father, through all of these things, as we look at the obedience of your Son, Jesus Christ, would you encourage our hearts, strengthen our faith, knowing we have a perfect and complete salvation that is offered to us through Christ. So I ask a lot, but I ask it of a great God, and I pray that you would do these things in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So there are three temptations that are recorded for us here in Matthew chapter 4. Each one of them has correlation to Israel's wilderness wandering. After they've been set free from slavery in Egypt, they go into the wilderness and for 40 years they wander and they disobey and they make little strides and then they take steps back and it's a mess for 40 years. And I want you to see that as we look at these temptations of Jesus, I'm not going to be explicit about the connections. I want you to see if you can hear these and see these. Um, I'll just give you one really quick, and that's kind of my only one that I'm going to explain. But as Satan tempts Jesus with food uh, in the wilderness, the people grumbled that they didn't have food, right? They were all ticked off about it, and so God provides for them what they needed, and they still grumbled and complained. There's just, there's, there's, that's just a really surface level connection but I want you to listen for these connections as we move through the text and I hope you can see them so as the true son of God Jesus succeeds he overcomes he doesn't give in to temptation we're going to see why that's such good news for you and I as we work through the text together so let's start at the top look at verse one then Jesus was led up by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil now this opening verse shows us the intentionality it shows us the purpose of what's unfolding here in Matthew chapter 4 in these first 11 verses. Jesus doesn't stumble across this temptation. It's not accidental. He's not caught off guard by this. This is the reason that the Spirit led him into the wilderness, quote, to be tempted. That's the purpose. That's why he's here. Now, just previously in chapter 3, which we looked at last week, we saw that the Spirit of God descended upon Jesus at his baptism. Do you remember that? It says like a dove, but the point was that Jesus was being anointed for his ministry. The Spirit of God was coming upon him as the prophet Isaiah had foretold it would. And so there we see the Spirit anointing the Messiah for his work, and here we see the Spirit active in Jesus' life as he leads him out into the wilderness to be tempted. Now, the word tempted is really only half right it could also be translated as tested, which it sometimes is. And I want to bring this distinction up because it's clear from the scriptures, specifically James chapter 1, that God does not tempt anyone. We've got to get that right out in the open here as we begin this. This is not God dangling the carrot in front of Jesus. It's not God's character. He's not trying to get him to sin or to fail. That's Satan's territory. But God does test. He does refine. He does bring his people through trials and testings to prove out the genuineness of their faith. So here's how I want us to think about this first verse. Jesus is led out into the wilderness to be tested, to prove out his obedience and faithfulness to the Father. Satan arrives, twists 
the intention. This is what he always does. He takes what God has designed for good, for growth, and he, he mangles it, he twists it, and he tries to form it in to fit his own purposes. And really, his appeal is so contrary to the Father. So while Jesus is testing the Son, we're going to see this from Hebrews, that Jesus learned obedience through what he was tempted. As this is the design, Satan, rather, wants to take Jesus and make him abuse his power. He wants him to use his authority as the Son of God for selfish means, which is just contrary to the design of God. Let me make this explicit. James chapter 1, verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted... I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But, this is verse 14, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. So Satan's goal here is to appeal to Jesus' flesh, to his human nature, to get him to fail there and to abuse his divine authority. If he can get Jesus to cave to temptation... If he can get him to fail the test, then it's done. It's over. If the Messiah fails at this, there is no salvation. There is no future. There is no hope and there is no redemption. So God has purpose and intention here. Satan takes that and tries to twist it and manipulate it and try to get Jesus to fail the test that the Father gives him just like he does with everything else. And the significance here, I already mentioned this, but let's talk about this for a minute, the significance of Jesus being out in the wilderness serves my own thesis, what I'm seeing in this chapter, that he is meant to show he can succeed, he can obey where God's people in the past have not. This is the betterness of typology. So when we study typology and you see someone in the past who is prefiguring or pre-shadowing someone in the future, it only works if the fulfillment is greater than the type. Tracking with me so far? So is Jesus greater than Moses? Yes, so it works. Is Jesus greater than David? Yes, that's, that's it, right? So it, it only kind of goes one way, and that's what we're seeing here, is that Jesus' ability to obey the Father is greater because he is the perfect son. In Exodus chapter 4, verse 22, God calls Israel his son. And through the 40 years of wilderness wandering after the Exodus, Israel, God's son, disobeys. Their time in the wilderness is marked by failure and frustration, but not so with Jesus. Jesus is the faithful son, the true son, who obeys in the wilderness where Israel had failed. And so as we move further into the text, we get more and more details. Jesus was in the wilderness 40 days and 40 nights. And this, of course, reminds the reader that it was 40 years in the wilderness for Israel. The, the comparisons, the connections are starting to sort of add up here. And Matthew doesn't want us to see this as some kind of figurative or metaphorical example. This is not a parable. This is real. This is not symbolic language. And he helps us with that by saying that Jesus was there not just for 40 days, but for 40 days and 40 nights. We're supposed to see the passage of time here. Okay, this is not symbolic. This is not just, well, if this were to happen, Jesus would do this. Nope, this is real. This is literal. 40 days, 40 nights. And then... <laughs> 
in probably the most obvious statement in the entire Bible. Verse 2, after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And I bet he was. Hopefully you can see what's happening here, right? What we are seeing with all these little details, some seemingly maybe insignificant, wilderness, fasting, okay, yep, we get it, we've heard this a hundred times. What we are seeing is the superiority of Jesus in every possible way. Every way. Okay, well, what, where do I get that? What am I talking about? Not only does he obey where Israel fails, but he does so under the worst possible physical conditions. The worst. Remember that when Israel is wandering in the wilderness, 40 years, they're stumbling around, God still, in his grace, provides food and water for them, clean water that they could drink, that they could live on. He provides manna and quail and everything the people need. His presence is there with them through the pillar of smoke and the pillar of fire, all of these things. And even with having everything the people needed handed to them, they still disobey. They still failed the test. And they did so with a full stomach. See what I'm saying now? About the superiority of Jesus? Jesus on the other hand, has not eaten for 40 days. He isn't drinking anything for 40 days. He is physically weak. He's exhausted from the heat. He's fatigued from his hunger. In other words, it's not just a parallel situation. Jesus is far worse off than the people of God were. And the reason for pointing this out is that once we see that there is greater stress, greater weakness, greater human possibility for failure, these things only serve to magnify the obedience of Jesus. It would be one thing if it was just parallel and everything was equal and the same, only Jesus succeeds, right? Great. But it's not. It's worse for him. He is alone. He is starved. He is weak. And yet he still as we are going to see, obeys the Father as his true son. So the first thing Satan does is he tries to appeal to Jesus' human nature. He tempts him to abuse his power and, as the Son of God, satisfy his desire for food. Now, the reason that I entitled the message, Same Story, Different Ending, is because Satan is doing here what he has always done from the beginning. Right? You remember back, we're studying Genesis, a lot of us for Bible studies... Genesis chapter 3, what, is, what does Satan do? He tries to get Adam and Eve to doubt, question the word of God, and satisfy their human appetites. That is exactly what is going on here. It's like this, you could just translate one onto the other. Satan wants Jesus to doubt if you are really the son of God, and he wants him to satisfy his human desires, his appetites. It's the same thing. And you remember at the end of chapter 3 of Matthew, when Jesus is baptized and the Spirit comes down, what do we see there? That the Father audibly declares, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. So Satan comes on the scene and says, well, if you are really the Son of God, what do you mean if? It was just declared that Jesus was the Son of God. So what Satan is doing is trying to trap Jesus in one of two ways. Either he will doubt the words of his father, he will doubt that what God said is true as Adam did in the garden, or, and I think this is preferable to Satan, he would think too highly 
of his position as the son of God and exalt himself in pride as the devil had done, exercise his authority for selfish gain. Either way he fails, whether he doubts the word of God or he exercises illegitimate authority. Either way, Satan goes, ha, I got you. But he didn't count on the third option. And that is the option of obedience. You see, Satan didn't count on this because for 4,000 years, this had worked. <laughs> it worked in the garden. It worked with God's people. worked with David. worked with the kings. worked with the prophets. Everyone in the history of redemption succumbed to this kind of temptation. And it's not just that if Jesus turns the stones into bread, it's an abuse of his power or an act of selfishness. It is those things. That's not the main problem here. It would be an act of outright disobedience to the Father if Jesus does this. You see, the Spirit of God, working in complete harmony with the Father, leads Jesus out into the wilderness to be tempted. That's the purpose. So if Jesus goes against that, if he gives into temptation, not only is it abuse of power, but it is disobedience to the plan that God has set before him. Listen to Hebrews 5, 8. I spent a lot of time in Hebrews this week. There's a lot of good correlation here. Listen to 5, 8 and notice the emphasis on obedience. It's Hebrews 5. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Do you see what's being connected there? That Jesus becomes the source, the, the fountainhead of salvation through his obedience. Through his not caving and giving in to temptation. If Jesus fails and disobeys the Father in the wilderness, there is no salvation for you and I. Because at that point, he is not perfect. He's disobedient, just like everyone else before him. But he doesn't. He has to endure to the end. And praise God that he does. As Hebrews 2.14 says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself partook of the same things. Verse 17, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Here's verse 18. This is it. For because he himself has suffered when tempted... He is able to help those who are being tempted. Do you see why this is such a big deal? Do you see why the obedience of Jesus to the Father in this situation is so important for you and I? If he fails here, it's over. No more. But thanks be to God that the Messiah, the Anointed One, is obedient. And I just think, I know it's really dangerous to say like this is the most important or this is the best or whatever, but just the active obedience of Jesus. Meaning his, his, his doing, his living. Why didn't Jesus just show up as an adult and say, hey, I'm the Messiah. I'm here to die for the sins of the people. Fully God, fully man. Why does he come as a baby? Why does he live 30 some years? For this so that he can live the life that we cannot, earn a righteousness that we don't deserve, and give it to us through faith. That's why 
And that is why this is such a huge, huge deal. So Satan can't get Jesus to disobey and satisfy his hunger through illegitimate means. He tries another tactic. He tries to get Jesus to test God, something that the people of Israel did repeatedly in their wilderness experience. He takes Jesus to the highest point, the pinnacle of the temple, and once again, he challenges the divinity of Jesus by saying, if you are the Son of God, but he also adds something else. He makes an assumption about what it means for Jesus to be the divine Son of God. Look at verse 6 again with me. And said to him, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. We're going to talk about this a little bit more next week, but Satan is taking the scriptures out of context, and he is twisting them to try to get Jesus tripped up. Now, it's one thing to trust God, that he will care for his people, that he will do what he has promised to do, that he will be faithful to uphold his word. It is quite another thing to, in a sense, force God to act. To, to intentionally kind of craft a situation in which God will have to do something. That is called putting the Lord your God to the test, and God doesn't think very highly of it. So Jesus recognizes what Satan's trying to do, get him to be disobedient by testing the Lord, and he responds by quoting Deuteronomy 6, 16, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test, and just an interesting side note here, like I said, I was in Hebrews a lot this week, and I just want you to write down Hebrews chapter 3 if you're taking notes. So I want you to go back and read that. I'm not going to spend too much time on that, but the writer of Hebrews picks up on this, and he makes this really clear connection between testing the Lord and the fact that it is disobedience, and he cites a lot of the same wilderness experiences of Israel and all these kinds of things. just super interesting, and I think it would help in your understanding. So I would encourage you, read Hebrews chapter 3. And I mentioned that reference to reinforce my thesis, that the primary purpose here of what we are seeing in Matthew chapter 4 is to highlight the obedience of Jesus. The fact that Jesus does perfectly what is needed to do. That is, the, that is the main thing that we are seeing in this section. So Satan can't tempt Jesus with food. He cannot tempt Jesus with putting the Lord to the test. So lastly, he goes for what he has been after all along. He promises Jesus the kingdoms of the world in exchange for worship. Now there's a few things we need to understand about this temptation. Uh, so let's read verse 8 again, Matthew 4, 8. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Now I want you to notice the, the upward progression, the trajectory of what's going on in the illustration of these temptations. It starts on ground level, down where the stones are. Jesus turned these stones into bread. Then it moves to the pinnacle of the temple. So now this is an upward trajectory, right? And now it says we are on a very high mountain. And so they can see all the kingdoms of the world. See that upward progression to what's going on with the temptations here? Now I don't think we need to try to identify this mountain geographically. That's not really the point. Rather, this escalation, this 
upward move of ground to high place to highest place shows the pinnacle of Satan's desire. His ultimate and his highest goal is that he would become God and receive the worship that God alone is worthy of. Isn't this what he's been after the whole time? He wants glory. He wants credit. He wants worship. But he wants it illegitimately. And he has been trying to dethrone God, attack God's creation, attack God's son in an effort to gain the worship that he selfishly desires. But you'll also notice in this temptation that there is some truth in what Satan says, in what he offers to Jesus. The nations of the world have been promised by God to the Messiah, to the Lord's anointed. You remember back from Psalm chapter 2. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. When the Messiah completes his atoning, obedient work, when he has lived a perfect life in righteousness before God, when he is glorified and ascended and seated at the right hand of the Father, the nations become his possession. That is what is promised to him all throughout the Old Testament. Looking forward, the same is true. Revelation eleven sixteen: The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever. The submission of all nations to the lordship of Jesus is as sure as the promises of God. It will happen. And it's already happening. So there is truth in what Satan is saying, but in this typical fashion, Satan offers all the reward without any of the work. This is something we've got to really be careful of because it is the same tactic. He offers what is attractive, what is seemingly satisfying without any responsibility or work. It's exactly what's going on here. He wants Jesus to bypass the road that the Father has laid out for him. It's very clear from reading the Gospels, Jesus knew where he was headed. He knew he was headed to the cross He knew why he was headed to the cross. And if he would have been taken off course, if he would have given in to this temptation and said, oh, yeah, you know, you're right, this sounds like a lot of work. I'd rather get all the reward. I want the nations, I want the possession of this without any responsibility. Again, we're done. Because at that point, Jesus fails. He disobeys. But he refuses to take the shortcut. He refuses. Satan is trying to tempt him. Look, Jesus, you don't have to go to the cross. You don't have to go through all that suffering, all that betrayal, all that pain. Why don't you just, you know what, why don't you just bow down to me? I'll give you everything you want, but you don't have to go through the hard work. That's the offer being made. Well, that sounds pretty good. All the reward, all the benefit, no suffering. (laughs) Thanks be to God that Jesus does not cave here. But he maintains his integrity, he maintains his obedience, he doesn't fall for it, and in total and complete submission and obedience to the Father, he rejects the offer and obeys God, as the Messiah was promised to do. But we should back up here and ask, does Satan even have the right to offer the kingdoms of the world to Jesus? Like, who owns the kingdoms of the world? (laughs) Are, Are they his possession? This is really 
I think, clearly illustrated with, with children, with small kids sometimes, when they'll take something from someone else and then they offer it to someone as if it's a gift that they're giving. It's like, you don't have the right to do that. Go give that back to who it belongs to, right? It's kind of what Satan's acting like a little kid. Is, is that what's going on? Does, does he have the right to extend this offer to Jesus? Does he hold sway over the kingdoms of the world? Is this a legitimate offer is what I'm asking. Anyone want to raise your hand? In some ways, yes, it is. Listen to how the Apostle Paul describes Satan. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 3. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Or Ephesians 2, 1 and 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following who? The prince of the power of the air. God of this world, prince of the power of the air. You see, if Satan has no authority here, if this is really an illegitimate claim, like he has no right to offer this, then where's the temptation? You think about it that way? If he is not making a legitimate offer, there's no, Jesus can just blow him off and be like, you, don't, you can't do that. There's no temptation. There's no holding up under tempting there, is there? No. Satan does have power. He does have influence. But he is not sovereign. He does hold sway in some ways over the hearts and the kingdoms and the people of this world. But with the coming of Jesus, at, at this point in redemptive history, Matthew 4, things are starting to change. The anointed one has come. The Messiah has come. The strong man is bound and his house is about to be plundered. In The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, when Aslan comes back to Narnia, it's been under the spell of the witch. And of course, if you don't know, these are... Uh, Lewis's characters for Satan and for Christ, the witch and the lion. When Aslan comes back, the effect of the white witch's spell begins to slowly dissipate. So he comes back into the land and all of a sudden the winter that had been there for hundreds of years starts to melt. Things start to thaw and her grip on the land loosens. Now Lewis didn't get this idea from his own imagination he got this from reading the Gospels. Yes, Satan has authority. He has power. He is not to be trifled with. But with the coming of Jesus, the spirit-anointed Messiah, his grip is starting to slip on the nations, which is such good news for us. So again, I say, praise God for the obedience of Christ. Now all of this time, from verse 1 all the way up through verse 10 where we are, Satan has been kind of acting like he actually has authority, right? He's been calling the shots, he's been taking Jesus here and there and doing these things. But now Jesus exercises true authority. So we see in the last verse. And in verse 10, he commands Satan to be gone and he goes. So here's my question. Why wait until verse 10 to expel Satan? If Jesus is the divine Son of God, and I don't say that skeptically, I'm just, 
we know he is. Why doesn't he use his power right away at the beginning of the temptation and say, get out of here. You have no right to be here. How dare you tempt me? I'm the son of God. Why doesn't he expel Satan immediately? Why does he wait until the end of these temptations? I think it's because of what he told John the Baptist in the previous chapter. In Matthew 3, verse 15, you can probably just move your eyes up the page. Jesus answered John, let it be so for now. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. If Jesus had not endured temptation to the end, if he had exercised his authority early, if he had not endured and held on and resisted temptation to the end, he would not be a fitting example for us and his obedience to the Father could be called into question. What do you know about suffering, Jesus? You just flexed your divine muscles and got him out of there. You didn't have to endure temptation. Yes, he did. And he did it willingly. He could have said this at any point in this whole temptation narrative. At any point, Jesus can say, out of here. But he doesn't. Why? So that he can be a complete, perfect Savior. And so that he can fulfill all righteousness. What Hebrews 4, 15 says, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. When it says, one who in every respect, that does not just mean different situations. Oh, you've been tempted in this way, Jesus has done that. You've been tempted in that way, Jesus has done that. That's true, but that's not all that means. When it says, one who has been tempted in every respect, read duration. For all of the time that we struggle under temptation, Jesus lasted. And it gives us hope that because he did, just like it says, he can be a merciful and faithful high priest. So why doesn't Jesus just kick the devil out of there to begin with? It's because of you and me and all of his people that he can be a faithful representative, that he can fulfill all righteousness. If he had given in, if he had short-circuited the Father's design in this testing, he would not have fulfilled all righteousness. And that is precisely why he comes. And it's not just the baptism of John. That was not the completion of Jesus fulfilling all righteousness. Everything he does in his life is the fulfillment of what he calls all righteousness. So when we see him resisting temptation in the wilderness, he's fulfilling righteousness. When we see him having compassion on those who are sick and downcast and kicked out, he is fulfilling all righteousness. When we see him walk in humility before God and man, he is fulfilling all righteousness. And when he goes to the cross, despising the shame, is crucified, buried, when he rises and ascends, glorified to the Father's hand, he is fulfilling all righteousness. All of it or none of it. Praise God that Jesus obeys and does not fail here. 
Because if he does, brothers and sisters, we are hopeless. Do you see why I'm so exercised about this? It is so important for you and I to understand and worship Christ because of his perfect obedience. Because of this, he is perfect. He is faithful. He offers to us a complete salvation because he endured to the end and he didn't short circuit any of it. Now you're probably wondering why I have not talked at all about Jesus' use of the scriptures, how he fights temptation with the Bible or how Satan twists it and that's because next Sunday uh, we're going to be Stuck in Groundhog's Day, we're coming back to Matthew 4, 1 through 11. Only this time, we are going to look exclusively at the doctrine of Scripture and how Jesus points us to the necessity, the clarity, the sufficiency, and the authority of the Word of God. So I didn't skip anything. We're going to come back to it next week. We're going to see all about Jesus' use of the Scriptures and how we can learn from that. So Come back and join us and we'll hit the high points then. But as we come to the table, I invite you to pray with me now. And just in response to what we have seen about this obedience of Jesus, there is so much for us to be thankful for. So would you come before the throne of grace and let's pray together. Father, what a wonderful Savior is Jesus, our friend. What hope we have because he did not give in. He did not fold to temptation. He did not shortcut the plan of redemption, but in every way he was tempted as we are, yet he never caved. What a blessing. What hope we should have because of Jesus' active obedience. So God... We have a wonderful opportunity now as we come to the table to celebrate what this means for us. So would you please remind us often that just as the book of Hebrews tells us, he is the founder and perfecter of our faith. Jesus is the radiance of your glory and the exact imprint of your nature. He is our spotless lamb. He is our perfect salvation. And maybe most gloriously, he is the righteousness that we do not have. And so God, we praise you for this. And pray that as we go about our lives that we would remember the obedience of Christ and the hope that we have because of it. And I thank you. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.